Hello, and thank you for joining our Philosophy Club, where lifelong friends discuss life's big questions, and small questions. All questions, really. Let's dive in. Let's do it. He's here. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Finally, so he knows on their terms here. <laughs> Johnny Mac, hello. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, good. Yeah. Uh, welcome. Okay. So, we, we need help. Yes, we're discussing. We'll see, yeah. Um, so, the initial question, um, it's too bad Katie's, Katie's gone already because she brought it up, but she was saying that she was at a museum and looking through this exhibit on ancient Egyptian culture, um, which she thought was really cool. But there was a little blurb that said something like, um, the ancient Egyptians tend to be very sort of socially um, conservative, is particularly in that they try to limit influence of cultures outside of Egypt on their own. Um, and so we were discussing, to really kind of give you the short version of it, because I guess we've been on talking for about an hour now, but we've been discussing... Um, is there a value to sort of isolating your own culture or to isolating any culture? And the idea that, because that, we, we've kind of got to the point where we seem to be, we value difference in cultures and particularly when those different cultures interact, we think that that's a valuable thing. Um, however, the fear is that too much interaction could lead to homogeneity. I don't know if that's a real word. With, within, <laughs> yeah, within, um, within cultures and that event, essentially a culture, could it, at some point in time, a small enough culture could be completely absorbed within another. And is there a real loss there? What is that loss? And add it out. So I guess you know, right now what we've kind of gotten to, and Ben used a, a great sort of, I guess, way of describing this, is we we're talking about sort of uh, a vertical, which we kind of are talking in terms of it's just like a historical connection to culture. And the idea being that, like, if I can say that, like, here in, in Lexington, like, the town has been around since the late 1700s, and so there's all this, like, history here or whatever, and we're well aware of the way things have gone through through the town. Or you can look at your own family and be like, yeah, my family's been have been doing this exact same sort of family tradition for generations and generations and generations. And there seems to be some value in that, but we're finding that, like, a vertical tradition because it sort of goes back in time. As opposed to, like, a horizontal cultural exchange, which would be the idea that, like, you being from Barnwell, a relatively small town in South Carolina, and me being from Roanoke, Virginia, which is a, I guess, small to medium-sized city in Virginia, those are two different cultures, but because the world has become sort of more homogeneous, we are able to get along and interact very well immediately. And that would probably also be true of someone from a large city from LA or something. We would We could immediately connect with them because there has become, to some extent, a homogeneity of culture that didn't exist before potentially not that that would have totally stopped yeah so that's more or less where we are ben correct me if i'm missing anything you nailed that okay all right yeah that's interesting um let me let me i have to think about the um the kind of specific framework that y'all have set up but when i when i think about kind of uh yeah either either cultural uh cultural purity so trying to contain a culture and and stop it from being influenced by outside forces versus um kind of cultural absorption i think it's useful to think about um we, we're talking about a culture but it's 
in the real world, um, you have to understand that there's always going to be a macro culture and there's always going to be a micro culture. So there are no pure cultures that are kind of pure. They're not, they're not pure like organisms, right? They always have a small unit that you can go down to and a bigger unit that you can move up to if you're talking about um, uh, micro versus macro culture. So like American culture, Western culture, Western Civ, um, all the way down to the, to the very, very micro. So uh, Columbia, um, Southern, Southern culture, Columbia culture, Barnwell culture. Micro microcosms of cultures and social units within those small towns are all going to be fairly unique. Um, have their own kind of kind of qualities. When it comes to a place, um, and and looking at that through deep time, it gets a little bit even funnier because you can always kind of uh, if if you're looking at something, um, what's the word? What's the word for it? Uh, Synchronous. If you're looking at something, uh, not synchronous. Um, maybe maybe asynchronous. If you're looking at something as like a snapshot of time, you can identify all these micro and macro cultures as kind of discrete things. Um, but when you ex when you zoom out and you look at deep time, you look at the depth of time. What you'll notice is that cultures are always kind of combining and reforming. So that was like one of the principles of something that I'm studying. Um, that was that was like kind of the one of the one of the questions that I was looking at in my thesis was how ethnogenesis happens. Um, so how two cultures come together um, and form a new culture. So ethnogenesis. So literally the genesis of ethnicity. Um, mm -hmm. Look at that happening in the um, in the American Southeast, for example, um, and in the the situation of my thesis, it was Native American cultures. So before contacts. You have these little polities and little communities that usually are, are kind of small, um, at least in this area, they're, they're usually small. So in South Carolina, in kind of the, the Columbia area, you tend to have a polity um, that has one city. And this is kind of the way that we conceptualize. This is, this is the, best, the best that we can kind of understand is you have one city that is kind of dominant over a river valley, over a big stretch of land. So the river valley, so Kovacek is the one that was really important here. So we know that Kopitacheki is like a historical place that, that people encountered and wrote about. And it had some kind of political dominance or uh, some kind of political sway over a vast swath of this river valley. There's also a place called Juara up in um, North Carolina area, the Catawba River Valley. And there's a place called, um, what was it called? Uh, there's, there's another place up in Eastern Tennessee. I don't remember the name of that place offhand. There are all these little tiny communities um, with individual names, these little cities and communities with names um, in the river valleys that these places have some kind of political authority over. So they'll send people, and maybe maybe Kopitacheki wants a certain amount of corn um, every year, and as long as these little polities are happy with that, they will send them that amount of corn every year. Um what we notice in the historical period when Europeans show up is that things destabilize. Um, Trofitschek, Joar, and this other big place up here kind of break apart. And they reform. All these little polities tend to reform into the communities that we kind of know of right now, the Catawba, the Cherokee, the Creek Nation. Um, so all these places are coalescing out of these individual discrete communities um, to form a community 
that we think of right now that does go i mean and and when 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 i say that they they're forming in this period they have cultural traditions to go back thousands of years they can be maintained you can say that they they have a similar culture and that's one of the things that helps them form this new community but they're not um but these were discrete communities at a period in the past um and what we notice is that a lot of the times uh the further back you go um it, it happens all the time. So there's some kind of rifts in a polity and they'll break apart and they'll go off and they'll form two new polities somewhere. And that I think is, is just a good metaphor for what we think of when we think about, uh, you know, cultural um, ethnogenesis, so cultural collection. Um, yeah, is that is that we think about cultures like Egypt as being um, forever. You know, we, we think about like Egyptian culture as being something that goes back forever. Um and and can be kind of qual- uh, called uh, called that, but in the real world, when we think about things that go on in history, we're seeing that they're always changing, always um, always evolving. And so, when you're looking at the phrasing that that museum um, that that museum was giving, it's something that Egyptians are a socially conservative. Um, uh, a socially conservative culture, and that they were sure. trying. Quick disclaimer: Also, Katie was saying she like kind of was vaguely remembering this blurb she read off a wall. So we could be totally wrong about the exact way they phrased that, but yeah. I think anyway, I continue. Think that's a fair. Oh, sorry, Ben. You want to say something? No, no. Sorry. No. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um. I think I think that that's a fair. If you're being like like strict about the definition of conservative, conservative, that is kind of what you're trying to resist change, resist change from outside. That's kind of the the apolitical definition of what that means. And so I think that that's a fair way uh, to talk about um, Egyptian culture, at least uh, during a period. Um, now, Egyptian culture is really, really old. It's It's got like, what is it, that that really fun fact that like the pyramids um, were like, oh, something about like Cleopatra is closer to us than like the pyramids were to Cleopatra. So, so you're, so yeah. Egyptian is, Egyptian society is, is just like absolutely massive. And so it's impossible to actually make um, kind of these broad sweeping generalizations about all that we consider um, kind of Egyptian, the Egyptian period. I'm not an Egyptologist. I think that it, there's like three, there's like three different um, kind of periods that Egyptologists tend to consider when they're talking about Egyptian culture. I mean, all three of those are going to have their own, um, their own kind of thing. Thing like the Assyrians are a big deal in, in one of them, and then and then kind of Hellenistic stuff and Greek Greek civ starts to starts to get more involved in that later period. Um, then so let me let me ask you. So I don't if if I don't mean to cut you off. I'm gonna say, but if if the I mean, which it seems makes total sense because we even brought up earlier. If it's true that you know cultures are kind of always changing no matter what, and it's really just a yeah. sort of a historical bias that makes us look on them as this sort of fixed, lasting thing. Yeah. Um, do you think then that there is any value to, because we talked about like today, like in modern day political cultures, like France and China both limit the number of like outside media that they allow into the country. Um, kind of like in an effort, like I know in France, like they only let like a certain, like something like only 10% of the movies that they show, I don't know this number I'm making up off the top of my head, can be like non-French speaking movies. Um, but like they limit the number of outside things that will they'll allow in and like China will limit the amount of like for an American movie to get over to China, it has to meet certain criteria and mm-hmm. and whatnot. Do you think then that that is a foolish endeavor? Um, is it is or or is what I guess what? Yeah, what do you? What's your thought on that? 
That's a, that's another good question. Um, I think like in in the framing of like deep time, it's probably it's it it it's obviously not going to stop cultural diffusion from happening. So in that sense, it is probably foolish. I but I but I don't think that it's necessarily uh, like I don't I don't think that it's necessarily wrong because what we're kind of missing when we're talking about these with generalizations is that there's always like a, there's always a, a power dynamic at play when we're talking about cultural diffusion. Um, so there's never that uh, unless two cultures are meeting on kind of equal grounds, um, there's always like someone trying to enact will upon another culture. And like that, that can be a good or a terrible, terrible thing uh, or a neutral thing. It could just be a thing that's happening. I think in kind of the modern sense, like at least in those kind of senses, when you're talking about like France is trying to, you know, that that sounds more like France trying to preserve like the French film industry, which like if you think that it's a good thing for the film industry to not become homogenous, then I think that that's a value. If you don't think that that's a value, if you think it's okay for the film industry to become more homogenous, then I think that that's probably not worth it. But that would be kind of, that would be the argument that we'd have to have there. Um, I think, so going back to the, the kind of Native American in America example, you could, you could talk about efforts to revitalize languages, language conservation, as as another kind of metric to look at this um but when you're looking at that you have to kind of take into take into account that the united states government um you know they went out of their way to try to destroy native indigenous languages and that was part of a bigger project a bigger genocidal project literally genocidal project where they're trying to get rid of native identity as it poses a threat to both kind of american capitalism and american cultural hegemony um, so they, they go out of their way to eliminate languages, um, to eliminate native identity, um, for, for reasons that they thought was valid that we, I think we can look at today and say, no, you probably should not have been doing that. Um, and, and, and the reason that we say, no, you probably should not have been doing that, of course, has a lot to do with how we look at that power imbalance, that power dynamic in retrospect. Um, yeah, so that's something we had talked about. A little bit earlier was we saying, you know, in, if we look at, because Ben brought up the point that what we're discussing now, and there's a chance that it's maybe more of a novelty of the modern era, is that some of this cultural diffusion now, like historically speaking, it was almost exclusively in terms of like one nation kind of conquering or imposing itself on another. Um, whereas in the modern world, we're particularly like the modern, I guess you could say the Western world or or what even not, but even like in parts of the East. Like, if you look at, like, the United States and Japan, like, I guess, yeah, there's a history of one of us kind of conquered the other, not conquered, but, you know, uh, there's a military history there. But at least in, the, like, the last 50 years, we're saying, like, you know, the internet and the the mass media and the way that information and cultures are able to be communicated, it's less, I mean, I'm sure there is still a power dynamic at play, um, but it seems to be less relevant, at least. I don't know, maybe you would disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at least in that case, it's, probably not like genocidal in the same way that it, it is in the other examples probably yeah <laughs> i think that that would be fair to say at least um i mean there's certainly you can talk about um cultural hegemony is kind of the end goal in these cases right so so you want um 
one kind of movie and, and, and it can get nefarious in that sense even if it's not genocidal it can still be nefarious so you, you you want one kind of movie or one kind of film to be the standard um, and in that case it's more economic than it is uh, anything else I think but you could I guess you could also make the uh, you could make the make the case that it's about values as well if you're talking about media at least well so we were kind of talking even beyond media because like we we brought up that you know even though and I get this was a probably a bad example because I haven't been to Japan but like you could go to Japan and go to a McDonald's um, but you could also still go to Japan and like experience more like I guess authentic or historically authentic Japanese culture and so it's not like that experience has necessarily robbed Japan of its history although again I don't haven't been there so maybe I'm wrong and maybe someone who is Japanese would disagree with that I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Like Japan is 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 one situation, and, and that I think it it's easier with a place like Japan because Japan is like doing all right for itself, right? Japan has some kind of you know economic force behind it. Um, I think it gets a little bit murkier when you look at a place like say Jamaica, um, where a place like McDonald's could legitimately move in, crush competitors, and they and and uh, I don't know there was. Oh, there was some kind of um, uh, some kind of documentary I watched on this that, that we showed the 102 students where we talk about specifically Jamaica, and you look at all the different like American industries that move in there, and and the effort, of course, there is to crush local industries, move in American industries, get dependency. I mean, it's easier to do that with a smaller country, obviously, smaller island country than it would be with a, a larger island country like Japan. So I, I think it, it it's hard to say that it's like obviously nefarious with a with a bigger country with something as innocent as like oh there's so there's so what there's a couple of McDonald's now um and maybe that's what the people want maybe the people want McDonald's cheeseburgers maybe they do um maybe they do but it but it does get a little murkier I think when you're looking at a when you're looking across different kind of power dynamics in uh, in, in terms of nation states. Interesting. Okay, so then, Ben, so to, uh, Ben, I'm going to kind of pose this question at you. Um, and so, like, what we were just talking about kind of just before Johnny Mac got on, um, Ben was essentially making the case that, the, to use the framework we, we kind of laid out, that this more horizontal across-culture um, exchange is more valuable than the sort of vertical, more historical cultural exchange. So, in the case of, like, a Jamaica, where let's say as more American industries move in, like, yes, it does kind of limit the more maybe historically Jamaican culture. Um, but if it makes them more amenable and able to relate to and engage with uh, a wider variety of, like, you know, if they could then go to America and fit in just fine because they've already experienced half of American culture, you know, because their culture has been, do you feel that, that that's still a net positive there or is, has something been lost by the diminishing of the more authentic or historical Jamaican culture? Yeah. That's, I mean, the framework that Johnny Mac brought up does, is changing my perspective a little bit. My default is still to say that it's better if one has to happen. Uh, I think we're sort of framing it as only one can exist and that assuming that you know, this American culture does go to Jamaica, that they will inevitably be lost. 
Um, and maybe that is the case, but I do see it as a possibility that both could coexist and that they could still preserve that vertical lineage, but also they could have a better understanding of this American culture such that if they were to immigrate to America, they would more seamlessly fit in off the bat while still having the opportunity to bring with them their own cultural heritage. So I know that's kind of a non-answer because I'm saying both. Um, but again, yeah, I, I don't see it, that it has to be free and just mutually exclusive. So I agree with you there. Um, but I think that what would likely happen is it at least makes the, the individual like historical cultural heritage less accessible. Um, like they kind of have to try a little bit harder more than likely to preserve that. Um, like to kind of like bring up the example we talked about earlier and obviously that's sort of a different situation but like in that movie wind river when the the native dad is like he's like you know in his morning he's putting on the cultural death mask or whatever it's like face paint um and and you know he's like he's like i had to just like make this up like i know that my people did this but i don't know how the specifics of that or whatever and so he's kind of lost touch with that um and again that's a bit different because it was much more violent and like uh maybe aggressive displacement of that culture but like we can imagine a similar scenario with traditional jamaican culture potentially if it's just sort of economically edged out over time yeah and, and i think that a big difference there um something something that uh so like maybe there maybe there are different a couple different kinds of cultural uh obviously there are a couple different kinds of cultural diffusion so we're talking about economic diffusion. Um, we're talking about things like McDonald's and the dairy industry moving into right. Jamaica. And and one of the things that kind of has to be emphasized there is that it's not just creating a more um, kind of homogenous landscape, um, although it is a, it is definitely doing that. And so then you could make the argument that yeah, sure, if if a Jamaican person in a more um, Americanized, Westernized Jamaica moves to America, they would have a little bit less culture shock to deal with, for example. But that's um, kind of ignoring that it's it's also what it's also doing is it's taking away the opportunity for economic growth um, within Jamaica because it is exporting, expediting that growth. So, so a lot of what's going on in, in those situations is McDonald's moves to Jamaica. Um, McDonald's, of course, is exporting its beef from wherever global McDonald's is exporting its beef. That kills the Jamaican beef industry. Um Another example that it gave, at least in this documentary, is is kind of powdered milk. The powdered milk industry moves into Jamaica. Um, thanks to the complicated tariff laws, it's a lot cheaper to have powdered milk and rehydrate it, sell it in Jamaica, than it is to just have uh, to buy and sell the, um, the kind of local dairy product in Jamaica, which, of course, destroys the dairy industry in Jamaica. Um, so then you are exporting... Um, where you know you're importing all of your goods, uh, and that is, of course, uh, that's that's not something that's super conducive to uh, economic growth, or at least, or even economic stability. It kind of makes the uh, it makes it so that the economy um, has to be all tourism. Um, there's really no other there's really no other other opportunities, at least in Jamaica, where that's kind of the situation. Maybe a, a better example of maybe equal grounds. Um, a slightly better example of uh, of cultural uh, cultural exchange might just be thinking about things like foodways and music industry. 
So with things like music, although I'm not an expert on, um, you know, on reggae, but of course you can see the, the ways that, uh, things like reggae, um, comes to be in Jamaica, you know, American artists kind of take on a reggae tradition, put their own spin on it, send it back. And there's this kind of conversation happening. I think that that's a, a, a much more benign. And of course you still have, uh, ways that, you know, you know, economics sticks its hand in there and you have big music labels and stuff who are, um, you know, trying to capitalize on it. But, but I think that's a better example. And, and things like feedways, where we have exchange of the crops and staple, uh, staple foods um, and different cultural traditions kind of speaking and coming to terms. So like what we, what we understand as soul food today, I think is really interesting because what you have are kind of traditional French cuisine, uh, European cuisine, cooking methods, combining with um, American foodstuffs and African foodstuffs and African cooking traditions, African cooking methods, as well as Native American cooking traditions. So things like cornbread, all these things combine into one thing that we kind of understand today to be, you know, Southern soul food. But they're really coming out of all these other rich traditions. Um, and even Southern soul food now you see you know, I, and it, it's interesting, even one person, um, one person who's, who's going to school here was, was doing their thesis on, on something, something to do with soul food and, and just hearing them talk and there's nothing against them. Cause I'm sure this is just maybe their elevator pitch, but they were kind of complaining about kind of the fusion and the hybridization of, of what's going on with soul food. So like upper scale soul food and people coming from California and making soul food, putting their own twist on it. When of course, if you understand it through deep time, you see that's that's never stopped happening. You know, it's always been fusion, um, and and that's kind of a better way to think about it. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, but I'm I'm always kind of stuck on the more nefarious, uh, you know, industrial stuff too. Because right. I'm, but I, I think right. those kind of things would make a more interesting conversation if there's no more nuance. Yes, I mean I that definitely helps to highlight. I was gonna say that helps to highlight sort of the positives sides of this kind of cultural yeah diffusion or, or interaction there is that you yeah you get this this fun fun mixes of culture that become its own thing um but i mean can we say that one happens without the other or like is there a, a situation in which you can have that that combination effect without also running into the, the more nefarious stuff well, I, I don't know because, yeah, because yeah, while I'm singing praises of how cool, you know, the soul food tradition is, you have to also, uh, you have to be willing to admit that that would not have happened if it weren't for colonialism and slavery. Um, so there's there's this dark history too that you have to kind of reckon with. And of course, I, I wouldn't, I would not say that slavery and colonialism were worth soul food, although soul food is by far one of the coolest outcomes of that. Maybe we strike that for the record. I don't know if that sounded great. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I'm I'm more interested in this discussion where we can take the platonic ideal of cultural conversion because I think it's pretty uncontroversial that these nefarious aspects are bad and usually not worth the cost. But when I think Katie first brought up this question, I guess I'm speaking for her, but I interpreted it as more thinking in terms of those softer transmissions like music, like art. Um, so Johnny Mac, you, you mentioned at one point in talking about movies, you said, you know, it, it would be a different conversation, but you know, 
Hollywood can decide whether or not it wants to be diverse. And I think that's kind of what I'm interested in talking about is assuming we have benign cultural transmission that ends up being homogenizing good or bad. That is, that is kind of interesting. Um, I, it, let me know if I'm, let me know if I'm getting off track. Cause I, I have a hard time sticking to the platonic kind of things that I know y'all, y'all really like to talk about, but I think that's an interesting idea. And I'll, I'll pose, um, maybe if we're thinking about, I, I think it would be, I think it's impossible. I, I know some like doomsayers think that this is where we're, tri- we're heading. I don't think it's, it's possible to get a fully homogenous anything, right? The world's not going to okay. be planet krypton where we only have one culture um even if and you already see kind of hollywood's hegemony reaching its little fingers out in places um but you have lots of different kind of centers you have uh you have you know even indie movies in america indie movies in america will never stop being i don't think i think yeah this strike is just proof that that that'll continue to happen you have like bollywood uh, centered in India and in uh, that that kind of area, um, and although you might see uh, more big blockbuster bo- blockbuster Bollywood movies incorporate kind of the uh, the the hegemonic um, blockbuster ideas that that kind of American Hollywood incorporate, they're never going to not put the Bollywood spin on it, right? They're not just going to straight up make an Avengers movie. And no matter how hard we work to try to make things homogenous, the forces that do work to try to make things homogenous, there, there's always going to be these little splinters. And they might not even, maybe if, if Hollywood straight up just incorporated Bollywood and these two combines, um, some, some, some part of that, some new part of that would ripped off somewhere completely unexpected in my mind. And that would be, and that would be cool and interesting to see. Obviously, the obviously that is not like a great scenario, um, but I but I think it would be impossible to totally get homogeny. I think I completely agree with you that in practice it would be impossible. But since this is philosophy club, let's assume that it was possible. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, so that's the question. I'm sorry, I mi- I misunderstood again, again. Okay, so so we're we're thinking about a situation where it is in fact possible for us to become one one human race, one one global. Yeah, so I think one of the examples I brought up, we were talking about bluegrass music and how it has lost some of its cultural cachet in the modern, although it seems to be having a bit of a resurgence. But in a world where we have streaming platforms that allow us access to the entirety of a music, of human music, more or less, if it's the case that everyone just chooses not to listen to bluegrass and it dies off organically, is that a loss? That's the question I keep coming back towards. And like, on one hand, it feels like, like, yes, like I want to live in a world that has a diversity of art and ideas. But on the other hand, in this example, for that to happen, people would have to actively listen to music that they don't prefer, which seems equally as absurd to me. So, um, Ben, my take on that, and again, this is kind of something we maybe said a little bit already. But is while it is, I think yes, it's a loss. Um, but it's a loss in the way that like it's one of just those like necessary, like it's a fact of life kind of losses that's gonna happen no matter what, like like death or something. Like it's um because like if if everyone if 
organically, everyone stopped listening to bluegrass music. What that means is that I have lost a connection point to, yeah, like my ancestors or whatever. Um, and like, while that's true, and I can't really force myself probably to like bluegrass music in the name of like maintaining that connection, it does. It's just like a, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing. Like that's just one more way element of like their legacy, I guess, that has died to kind of talk about what we talked earlier. Um, if we're, if, if what we're afraid of in terms of losing this, uh, this cultural, maybe vertical historical tradition, um, is that might be rooted in our fear of like these, of like the legacy dying or whatever. Um, yeah. And then. So like if my say my grandfather was a big fan of bluegrass music or whatever, and I just don't ever listen to it, I don't like it. Um, then that's just like one way that I'm not relating to him, um, whether he's alive or not. Um, and so like it does it feel like a loss? Yes, it does. But have is it an inevitable loss? Like eventually, eventually, like, like I was saying, if I've got an ancestor came over on the fucking Mayflower, I don't know. I probably have virtually nothing in common with that guy Carl culturally. And is that a bummer? Kind of. Um, I feel it less distinctly than it would be if like, I had nothing in common culture with my own grandfather, because I guess maybe it's because the closeness of that feels more tangible. Um, but it's also like an inevitability. Like My great-grandkids will probably have nothing in common with my grandfather, you know, realistically. Or, you know, very little other than a few things here and there. Um, and that's kind of a bummer for me in the middle, who would like values both the relationship I have with my grandfather and probably the relationship I will have with grandchildren or whatever, but is an inevitable, inevitable act of life more than, more than likely. Johnny, I'm curious, do you have a strong feeling on this either way? I and mean, you don't even have to like argue for it. Um, so Michael is sort of saying there's just this ineffable essence to connecting with the past that's valuable. Do you have any sense of that? I, and to you know to give you grounds, I don't feel that way. So you're you're in safe company either way. Yeah, I, I think a, I think that that has to come down to personal preference. Um, I I think that we have the evidence that enough people care about that. Um, if 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 enough people didn't, like Ancestry.com wouldn't exist. Um, but I don't I don't know that it's I don't know that it's like um an inherent an inherent value. I think it is just a preference preferential value does that kind of make sense does that is that work as a non-answer i don't i don't know that it's I'm, a... I'm comfortable saying that's sort of just down to personality yeah or like how much you value legacy yeah as a inherent value yeah um i i think that you know studying history is important um, obviously but i i don't know whether I don't know whether this the the kind of with the thing that Mike Mike is talking about the kind of uh, the need to feel in touch with one's own one's own past is um is necessarily uh, intrinsic or, or whatever. I just want to flag something that has happened twice now in this philosophy club that you never see when we have a bigger group. So twice now, someone has said something is uncontroversially valuable. And no one has challenged it. <laughs> so Michael earlier was like, yeah, I think we can all agree that knowledge is obviously valuable. And Johnny Mac just now was like, learning about history, obviously important. 
That's which I, I agree That's with true. all of those things, but it's it's something you <laughs> never see in philosophy club but that gets away. Yeah, that's no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I I think people smarter than me have probably made a better. It probably like argued before that studying history is valuable. So I don't I don't know that I feel like I need to do that. Right yeah, now. no, no. Yeah, just that was just a, yeah. an observation, not yeah, a need to argue. Because I'm sure in a group of six or seven people, someone would challenge. That's that. not gonna fucking fly. Yeah. <laughs> it's- I'm also so kind of maybe wrapping this up. Do we think? the egyptians then with you know we've got two hours of arguments here how do we feel overall it kind of seems to me like at least my read on this whole conversation was they were probably smart to isolate a little bit because they would have been overpowered in some way if they had been too open johnny mac is that a fair read on your it it depends on yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really curious about. I would need to know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist, not a philosopher. I need to know what like dynasty this is talking. About. That, that makes that matter. Is this? All Africans are so stupid. We're just like Egyptians. Is this when? Is this when the Greeks and the Hellenists in Europe are trying to impose, you know, colonialism, some kind of neo-colonialism on, on not neo-colonialism? I'm trying to sound stupid, but are are they trying to impose their will on? Egyptian society at this point is this when Egypt Egypt itself is still trying to be a colonial force I think that those are two really different scenarios uh, really different contexts that I think um, and I I don't know if that changes the answer necessarily because I think if you if if you're a society that's trying to do colonialism then of course you're going to try to be a little bit more conservative you don't want you're, you're absorbing all these countries you don't want them to impact you too because you're trying to do a colonialism. If you're trying to protect yourself from colonialism, then of course, you're not going to try to get absorbed. You're going to do your best to try to maintain some kind of some kind of cultural purity. So it doesn't change the answer, but it, it changes the, the context for me a lot. I'd like to say, uh, first, I really enjoy the phrase, do a colonialism. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but second, I think if we're, I think I'm, I'm going to limit my answer specifically to these benign, more benign things like music or art or whatever. Um, I think if, like me, you value that sort of historical personal tie, then yes, there probably is a pretty good reason to sort of at least self-isolate to the extent that you're not putting yourself at over risk of being completely absorbed culturally. Um, so like what France is doing... I think is likely excessive, um, but makes sense in principle to me. Um, however, I think if, like Ben, your side, I think if I were to not put any value in that, then I think there's no reason, at least in terms of the benign things, to try and isolate or, or you know, maintain that sort of cultural purity. Well, and I think because Ben, ben frames it in a useful way with the bluegrass thing, right? Because if no one cares about bluegrass, why do we need to preserve bluegrass? Uh, we don't. In the bluegrass, but kind of sense, yeah. <laughs> but if, but if, if, if we got but to, if, if I did, yeah, yeah, if we got to this point where, and I, I also like bluegrass, so I don't know. We're three people who probably generally kind of like bluegrass, like bluegrass, yeah, yeah. This is this is a stupid example to give for in this, this group. Fictional world where. <laughs> cares about bluegrass then of course i think it's fair to just let bluegrass grow now i don't think that's how it would actually happen because bluegrass has its fingers in other things and and bluegrass is something that comes out of other things 
Um, there, there are sections of the country, the rock, the folk industry, that are more bluegrassy um, than other things. And I think that's kind of how it worked in like the Egyptian sense, right? So if, it, if Egypt is worried about like Assyrian arts, if Egypt is worried about like Assyrian swing dancing coming in and taking out the uh, the walk like an Egyptian style that classical Egypt is is more is more um, uh, familiar with and comfortable with, then that like that feels a little bit iffier to me because I don't think one is going to totally subvert. I think what's actually going to happen is that people are going to have their preferences. Some people are going to do one or the other, and then some people are going to be like, "Hey, both of these things are cool. Let's make something new." Um, making a, you know, a hybrid dance style. Um, and that's not going to, like, no one's going to be worse off for that. Um, I think that there are cases like the France situation where France is trying to preserve its film industry in the face of a different kind of industrial powerhouse, um, hegemonic powerhouse, the American Hollywood film industry that is actively trying to make itself, like, the only thing that people watch. So in that case, I see, I see it making sense to put up some kind of economic blockades um, and maybe I'm creating a difference where there's not one, but that's kind of how I'm seeing it. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Ben, Ben, what are your, what are your kind of closing, closing thoughts on this issue? I was just going to say, I think I just mentally may have done a 180, <laughs> which perfect. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, what Michael said was, I mean, you said something I just don't agree with, and I'm trying to figure out why, but you said, if you don't care about legacy, then there's no good reason to preserve this. And I don't care about legacy, but I do think there's a good reason to preserve culture. And I'm trying to figure out why I think that what I have come to in the past three minutes, so obviously this is not going to be a well-formed thought, is that one of the best parts of of cultural transmissions, and I'm thinking, again, the benign stuff, your art, um, is that it, it allows you to experience just all these different aspects of the human experience. And because of how different we all are, everyone is going to connect differently with different pieces of art. So just because that, you know, in this fictional world where no one in this generation cares about bluegrass does not mean that in the next generation, there will not be someone for whom bluegrass connects deeply, more deeply than any music they do have access to. So through that lens, mm -hmm. I think it's actually valuable to preserve as much diverse art as possible and then make that readily accessible to as many different people as possible. So I think somehow I'm arguing for both cases at the same time. Interesting. Okay. Um, I don't have a major issue with that thought. I don't think I have a ready report, at least. So, Wow, did we just end a philosophy club by saying it's complicated? Yeah. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, um, good good talk, guys. This was this was fun. Um, yeah, definitely some stuff to think on. I'll, I will probably at least be more cognizant of local cultures um for the next immediate future i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah michael really go connect with that history of robert e lee that'll be good for you <laughs> yeah very explore the subject and the uh, the micro the micro cultures of uh, the law school <laughs> great great can't wait to dig in uh <laughs>
Okay, well, uh, good talk, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. All right. Peace, boys. Yeah. With another Philosophy Club in the books, we want to give a huge thanks to our charming and talented friend Sam for all his help editing and producing this episode. And thanks to you, too, for joining us. We hope you'll come philosophize with us again next time. Thank you.